0: I'm Sherry Greco-Rikus, co-founder of Rappaport Rikus Capital Management. Welcome to the Maximize Your Return on Life podcast. As an investment advisor, I guide clients to reflect upon their core values as they make major life decisions. I will be interviewing real people with real stories who have embraced this approach to achieve success. I hope their stories will inspire you to maximize your return on life. Today, I have a special guest, David Booth. For many of our listeners, this name might sound familiar from the University of Chicago Booth Graduate School of Business. Yes, David made a very generous grant to the school in 2008, which was the largest gift to any business school in the world. So guess what? They named the school after him. But that's only one aspect of his philanthropy. We're going to talk about others today as well. David received his economics degree and masters from the University of Kansas and his MBA from the University of Chicago. He's received too many awards to list here and he's also on many boards. So we're gonna list them all on our Maximize Your Return on Life website. David co-founded Dimensional Fund Advisors 41 years ago. And I can't wait to hear the story. I believe it was in an apartment in New York City, but we're gonna dive into it a little more. He is now the executive chairman. Today, Dimensional manages over $500 billion with 1,500 employees and one philosophy. The philosophy, markets are efficient. Trying to outsmart the markets by picking individual stocks or timing when to get in and when to get out just doesn't work. Our firm shares this belief and has been partnered with Dimensional since our founding almost 20 years ago. We utilize Dimensionals Mutual Funds and ETFs as a key part of our value-added indexing investment approach. David is a frequent speaker on CMPC and other outlets, usually talking about the markets. Well, yes, we're going to talk to him about investing today, but we're going to go beyond the typical questions that he normally gets. We'll talk about how he started the firm, his values, and much more. But before we dive in, I want to thank David and his firm, for playing such a key role in maximizing the return on life for our clients. I'd also like to thank David for his kind review of my book that I published last year, Maximize Your Return on Life, Invest Your Time and Money in What You Value Most. One of the first few chapters of the book, I start by asking readers to think about their early memories of money. Those early memories play such a key role in how we relate to money as adults. So, David, welcome, and I'd like to start by asking you about your early memories of money.
1: First off, thanks for uh, having me on. I I enjoy this, and and it's been a great working with your firm over the years. When I was eight years old, we were living in a really small town in in Kansas, and um, they had a weekly newspaper, the Anderson County, and and he uh, sold it, you know, door to door for a nickel. I don't know how I managed to wrangle that, but I got a a job, you know, selling the newspaper door to door. And um, the thing I remember the most was at the end of the the day, I'd come back and Mr. McCullough, who owned the newspaper, would sit down with my bag of nickels and he'd say, okay, you get one, I get one. My uh, reward was half of the the price. So finally I said to him, Mr. McCullough, wouldn't it be easier if we just added it up and divided by two? (laughs) Anyway, that's my first example of money and being cheeky at the same time.
0: So it looks like you were an entrepreneur from the start, huh?
1: Money was tight around the the family. And uh, somehow you got the impression that, you know, you could go out and do things on your own and make life a lot easier.
0: And even then you were re-engineering the way that Mr. McCullough ran his business by making it easier, (laughs) making it more efficient, right? Yeah, So what did you do with those nickels?
1: Well, uh, I saved them up, and I get Christmas gifts, a little bit of money here and there, and it was 8th grade. I bought a sport coat, which I thought was fantastic, and had to start all over. It took everything I had.
0: Wow, wow. Starting young and and making money, I think that really ingrains you, and I think you appreciate money, because when you make it when you're young, you appreciate it a lot more than if you were just given.
1: Yeah, no, it's um, and also along the way, learn um, things that you will do and the things that you won't do. Eventually, I ended up selling shoes in college. That's how I put myself through. I had a scholarship and then I sold shoes in the afternoon. And um, even though I was a commission salesman, I, at the end of the day, what I realized that what was important to me was that I felt good about myself more than going for the commission. And it turned out, That was a secret nobody seemed to know because that created loyalty among customers and stuff that you know really helped me out long term
0: (laughs) yeah definitely and i i think that when young people have the jobs and if it's a waitress or selling shoes it really teaches them long-term skills for the future so you grew up in lawrence kansas
1: yeah well high school there yeah
0: you went to high school and then you went to college right at university of kansas and then you went to the big city, Chicago. So how did you end up at University of Chicago?
1: Well, I did a year of graduate work at, uh, at Kansas, and, uh, and I took a finance course that year. And I go, wow, that's that's what I, I like. I, I was the kind of kid that it seemed like every year I liked whatever I was taking and thought of my major in geology for a while or history or French, you know, like we all do. Then all of a sudden I took this finance course and I go, wow, that's really, that is what I wanna study. And I thought I wanted to be a professor, so you uh, needed a PhD for that. So I applied to uh, the University of Chicago for the PhD program, and uh, they were kind enough to take me in. And that's where my life went through a huge jump for the better, uh, not only learning the material, but the people that were there. This was a, the fall of '69, 1969, <laughs> uh-huh. the field of finance and really economics was undergoing the tremendous change. A lot of it brought on by the fact that um, computers were big enough and data were available that you could test a lot of things that you couldn't test before. And arguments, most of your arguments now were included some data. <laughs> you know, Before 1960, most of the arguments were theoretical. You didn't have much data to, to talk about. So anyway, it was a very stimulating, exciting time. You know, uh, something like a third of the economics, uh, Nobel Prizes and economics have gone to somebody that's affiliated, been affiliated with the University of Chicago. And a lot of those guys were there, you know, at that time. So it was a very exciting time.
0: So who were some of the guys that were there and the mentors at University of Chicago when you were there?
1: Well, several of them became and when we started our mutual fund and we had to have an independent board of directors for the mutual fund,
0: uh-huh.
1: we relied heavily on those professors, you know. Merton Miller, who got his Nobel Prize in 1990, Myron Scholes, who got his Nobel Prize in 97, Milton Friedman and George Stigler, those guys are around too. They weren't weren't around when we started the firm.
0: Yes, so these are the rock stars for our listeners of the economic world. So you're you're hearing from someone that knows these people. It's it's pretty amazing. The main
1: guy was Gene Fama.
0: Gene Fama's, yeah.
1: I was his research assistant. And oh, okay. what I learned from that is I, I didn't want to be a professor anymore because he's at the top of the list in terms of professors. And he you just have to research things to death. I realized these ideas were incredibly important and valuable and nobody was applying them. So what I wanted to do, I thought my comparative advantage was not so much in developing the next beta model, but rather convincing people about a different way of investing you know, as you mentioned, primarily that you can have a good investment experience without forecasting and predicting the future. And Too many people think you have to predict the future in order to figure out what to do. Instead of predicting things, I think of what can happen, not what will happen. You know, plan for negative outcomes as well. So you're never surprised. Then uh, do the best you can while, while understanding the amount of risk you're taking.
0: So, you know, going back, you were with the newspapers and the shoe salesman. How did you decide to start Dimensional and apply these principles you learned? Can you bring us back to that?
1: So when I decided to leave the Ph.D. program, uh, Fama called up a guy named Matt McQuown. Who was Wait, starting... can we go
0: back a minute? Did people try to encourage you to stay in the Ph.D. program, or they were happy that you were going to apply it? Well,
1: I had a good gig going. I had kind of the top money in terms of fellowship and working for Fama. That's what everybody wanted to do. So I had that going for me, but it turns out I wasn't happy. <laughs> and I looked inward going to maximize your
0: return on life. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Return on life. I'm at an inferior point right here. I need to do something to pull out of this.
0: So you look deep in listeners. If you're not happy, look deep in and and use David as an example. So let's move forward.
1: <laughs> so I looked back, I said, what do I, what have, what have I enjoyed? I said, I enjoyed selling shoes. Maybe I should try to sell these ideas uh, rather than try to develop new ones myself so i went to work for wells fargo they were starting they wanted to start the first index uh, portfolio which they did and was there for a while and then our group got shut down that's a different story but so we're talking 50 years ago then people the idea of indexing wasn't a term that anybody was familiar with so we had to start from ground zero you know convince people that trying to out guess the market was a waste of time and so forth. And so we started indexing, but uh, we quickly indexing became a very me- mechanical process. In order to track an index, you have to hold the stocks. Uh, let's say it's a stock index. You have to hold all the stocks in the index and exactly the proportion they represent in the index itself. So what that means is if a new stock comes into the index today, you got to buy it today. Along with everybody else that's tracking that same index, in order to have no tracking error, you got to buy it at today's closing price. Otherwise, you'll have tracking error. So that's one way to go ahead. But we go, geez, that can't be. Uh, that can't be the best way to do things. I mean, if you're trading the same time as everybody else is, and you want to have a price guaranteed, that's probably going to cost quite a bit of money. Uh, so when we came around, a number of things came together to start Dimensional. So we had the background in indexing. And consulting work for AT&T, which at the time was the largest pension fund in the world. The Bell System, it was just mainly one big telephone company. That all got split up. And I helped them create an index fund. And I go, they had 110 managers picking stocks for them. I go, I don't know what you have here. But with these 110 managers, you got about everybody that's any remotely credible at all picking stocks. They're trading with each other. And none of them are holding the stocks of small companies. If you want to index something, why don't you index the small end of the market, stuff outside the S&P 500 or, or Russell uh, 1000. So they did, and the idea took off. And went, In today's terms, the idea went viral. And uh, so, gosh, maybe there's a business in this. And my company didn't want to pursue it. So we, a bunch of us branched out on our own. My brother was living with with me in my condo in Brooklyn Heights. I booted him out of the Condo and put in the trading room and off we went.
0: Wow! From Brooklyn in the trading room and and Dimensional. So you started with small company and now you have how many different funds? Uh, we
1: have one hundred and twenty different funds. One hundred and twenty, yeah. But you, but you point out that they're all variations. You know, what we found over time is some people, you know, are taxable. Some aren't. Some have social concerns. Some have tastes and preferences. And it's kind of like we can design portfolios to to adapt what we do to their particular situation. But it, they're, they're just versions of the same thing.
0: And the funds are low cost. And we don't have time today to really dive into the dimensions of dimensional, but we are always happy at Rappaport Rikus Capital Management, rrcapital.com. We can talk and talk about how great Dimensional manages money. And we're always happy to do it. So I want to shift a little bit because a lot of this podcast, Maximize Return on Life, is talking about how values influence people. And I know you have a big dedication and there's a couple ways that you have impacted. So I want to go through a few of them. So how did you decide to donate to University of Chicago Graduate School of Business?
1: Well, okay, as I mentioned, I mean, it totally changed everything for me going there. Yeah. And then when we started the the firm and we had to have an independent board of directors for the mutual fund, these professors, big-name professors, uh, all volunteered to do it. We didn't have any money, so it wasn't, it wasn't even clear they were ever going to get paid.
0: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> and they did it because they, they believed in our ideas, and, which were their ideas, you know, so we were all struggling together. They were struggling to get their ideas out, and we were struggling to start the firm. And um, And that continued on for, well, it's really continued on for 41 years. My family situation got to be, we were financially secure, and the kids were given them as much as we thought we ought to give them and so forth. I said, well, now it's time to start paying back. University of Chicago is really at the top of the list. you know. What a, so I said, I, I want to give them a big chunk of what I have. So I went to the uh, dean of the business school and said, "Here's what I'd like to do for the university," and they go, "Holy cow, that's!"
0: Did they fall off their chair? Yeah,
1: that's <laughs> that's at least twice as much as we we always wanted to name the school. This is a lot more than we were going to ask for. Uh, so I'll name the school after you. I said, "Okay, whatever." You know, I did it for me, not to make me feel good, not for getting the name of the school.
0: And that that's what they often say. You know, when you give, you get back more than you give, and the pride that you probably have is is tremendous.
1: Well, and and we can, it's really celebrating. I mean, they, they all these professors, everybody associated, and associated with the firm over the years. We could all feel good about that. You know, it it worked out. It really did help people.
0: So I bet Gene Fam was pretty happy you didn't stay in the PhD program that you started Dimensional.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We, <laughs> you know, uh, a decision that worked out well for everybody
0: for everybody, including Rappaport Rikers Capital Management. I so I want to talk about something I found fascinating. I um, was working out this morning with my trainer who played college basketball, and I told him I was going to be meeting and talking with the person that bought the Naismith rules. And I know they were created in 1891. And can I had to do a lot of research on this. Can you explain what the Naismith rules are, how you bought them, and why they're so important to you?
1: Basketball, I think, is the only major sport in the world that, uh, where you can identify uh, the origins. And the origins of basketball were back in 1891. James Naismith, uh, he was uh, studying at the, at the YMCA in Springfield, Massachusetts. In those days, the Y gave degrees out. And uh, it was a class project, uh, you know, invent a game. And you can go in great detail how we why he out the rules but the point was his game he developed this game he had typed up on two typewritten pages just regular typewritten pages a game which he called two words basketball
0: and this was 1891 right?
1: 1891 wow and uh, so that's those rules those two pages stayed in the family for years and then eventually they decided to auction it off in Sotheby's in 2010 and uh I ended up, I mean, if, if one of the lists I've learned in life is if you're willing to pay more for something than anybody else in the world will pay for it, you can end up with it. So, uh, <laughs> well,
0: well, I read a funny story and I don't know, you could tell me if this is a, a myth or not, but there was someone from Duke that was, you were on the phone with Sotheby's and right. you were, you were bidding on it and someone kept bidding you up, bidding you up, bidding you up. And, and he came to you later and said, sorry, I cost you some money. And And what did you say to him?
1: I uh, said, so, you owe me a dinner, at least. This,
0: at least. <laughs>
1: this uh, It was David Rubenstein, who runs uh, one of the founders of Carlisle. Anyway, if anybody's interested, you can see it on the ESPN, There's No Place Like Home video.
0: Yeah, so there's a documentary, 30 for 30, There's No Place Like Home. And it's a great story. So did you ever have dinner?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, actually quite a bit, <laughs> because, because it turns out now he's funny enough. He's a chairman of the board of the University of Chicago.
0: <laughs> oh, that's so funny. See, things yeah. come around. So where are the rules now? So what happened after you bought them? Well,
1: um, they decided uh, to put an addition on to the basketball stadium, Allen Fieldhouse, to house these rules. And so once they got that built, I uh, gave them the rules. So now they're hanging at the uh, basketball stadium. It's called the De Bruce Center. Uh, mm-hmm. And... You know, an hour and a half before game time, uh, basketball games, you know, there's always a long line of people that want to walk by. It's a small exhibit, but there's something special about sticking your head in there and seeing that those two pages are what created uh, basketball. It is touching.
0: And it was created at University of Kansas, right?
1: Well, no, he's in Springfield, Mass., but as soon as he graduated... Okay, okay. He went to teach at the University of Canada. Oh, he went to teach, for okay. 40 years, and he's buried in Lawrence. So Naismith is a big name, and I grew up on Naismith Drive in Lawrence.
0: <laughs> That's a. I mean, I read that, and then there was something about, was your address 1931, and there was some significance with that?
1: So he, he invented it in 1891, and then 40 years later, his kid said, hey, Dad, you need to sign this, you know? Uh, oh. <laughs> they, so he signed it, and it turns out he signed it in 1931. Signed his name, and I grew up on 1931 Naismith Drive. And so anyway, wow. Numerology, you know, probably means you know happiness for everybody or something.
0: Yes. Yeah. Like so I, I think there's a lot of karma there, and again, it's the values, and you're giving back to the community and and everything like that. So you're a Jayhawk fan, is that correct?
1: Yeah, rock chuck.
0: Rock chuck.
1: Here, we were we national champs in case you've been asleep. Yeah,
0: show me here. the ring again. I'm going to take a picture. Here's the ring
1: right here. Yeah, yeah. showing.
0: Yep, got the ring. You also have your name at University of Kansas on the football stadium?
1: Yeah, they name the football stadium. I, I, um, you're right. I've gotten so much out of all of this philanthropy. Uh, I mean, the idea that Kansas wins a basketball championship and they feel like they should give me a ring. Like the players? <laughs> Yeah, that's a big reward. I mean, it's makes it all makes you feel good.
0: And you know what? You never forgot your roots. You were, you know, you gave back to where you started, you gave back to university of Chicago. And I think, you know, I always talk to clients, look at your values, what's important to you. And it's so beautiful that in your lifetime, you can see this. A lot of clients leave it in their wills, but it's, it's great that your family and I think you're passing these values down to your family.
1: Well, hopefully it is more fun giving it away while you're above ground. You know?
0: Yeah. So David writes amazing material, and I know a lot of our listeners, we, we include a lot of it in our newsletters, and we're very thankful. It's always so insightful, but you write a lot about human ingenuity and how investing in the market allows us to capture the returns associated with innovation. Yet so many investors look for the bad. They're always pessimistic about current conditions. What should they do? What's the disconnect?
1: See, human ingenuity, it's, it's it's kind of difficult to predict where it would ever show up, but it, it does. I mean, you think, for example, I was looking at the last three years, uh, ending the no, end of November you take the last three years. The stock market's up. The Russell 3000 index has had a 34% rate of return. That's a little over 10% a year. I bet you very few of the people listening realize how what the market has done. So that says... Through this whole period of the pandemic in 2020 and then the rebound stuff, so forth, you take all that together, stock market's been uh, pretty good. It's kind of done what it's done historically, a little over 10% a year. How do you explain that? Well, but it really is about human ingenuity. You know, we were hit with this pandemic. price Stock prices drop, not surprisingly. And then human ingenuity kicks in and got these vaccines done and warp speed. By the end of the year, People with vaccines were out. Incredible. So prices come up and down. So it's really a story about how markets and really the miracle of markets and how they work. That, yeah, over any three-year period, you're going to have some good things happen, some bad things happen. And market does a pretty good job sorting through all of that. And and voila, <laughs> the last three years, markets has a pretty nice rate of return. And I'm not making light of all the agony in between, but uh, you can't get caught up in, and all that stuff, you got to tune out the noise.
0: And I think what a lot of people, they always have the high on their mind. So they forget the last three years was up 10. They say, well, I was over here and now I'm down here. And yeah, you have a lot of smart people on your board, a lot of smart people, at dimensional. And I, I think over the years, the research would have tried to find a way to time the market. But with all the smart people, is there a way we can time this market?
1: no there 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 isn't and, and and that's really the exciting i try to when i write things i try to end up with a a message of optimism and hope although some of these people say you're not really optimistic you're realistic the basic market process stock and bond markets you know are such that every day prices are adjusting to induce people to come in and invest you know if people didn't think they would have a good return they wouldn't come in and invest and so yeah sometimes bad news comes in and prices drop to a level that Coin forward, you would you have a positive expected outcome. You know, not the market's not perfect, but it's the collective wisdom of millions of people coming together. And I think prices are largely set by institutional investors. So unless you think you're smarter and faster than all the institutional uh, managers out there, it's a waste of time. And it ends up going back to your life experience. And going through life, thinking you're supposed to be able to outguess the market when in reality you can't. You end up frustrated when if you just accept the beauty of markets and they're working for you, all these millions of people, all these investors out there working, buying and selling, setting prices are doing it in a way that you end up with a positive outcome. I, I don't know. It doesn't get any better than that, you know?
0: Yeah, that's why we say working with Dimensional maximizes the return on life of our firm and our clients. Sometimes we just see the stress leave our clients' faces when they come to us and we invest through this philosophy because, you know, if you're buying an individual stock or you've got crypto, what happens when you hear the news? You really get anxiety. And and the whole key is you need to have an, a plan and we hope you have an advisor because emotions take over. And I think the advisor is really the backbone of the whole approach of investing.
1: Well, no, I think that's that's a critical part of the mix because you need to make informed choices You know, people on their own don't have the ability to really understand, you know, a lot of these things. So you need somebody not only to help you make good choices, but also to stick with them. One of the things that's most important is you come up with with a sensible uh, investment mix that's reasonable for you to to stick with, and then stick with it. One thing that doesn't work is getting in and out and trying to do all kinds of things, shifting around. That's a losing game.
0: And I guarantee if it did work, your group would have figured it out and they haven't and it doesn't work. So (laughs) but I just want to thank you, David. I mean, I hope it was so fascinating for me to hear about the nickels and the shoes and how you started the firm and, you know, how your values and how you've given back. And it's truly a great story. And I think you're going to leave a wonderful legacy for your family and for all of us and all your partners at Dimensional. So thank you for being on the podcast. I, I learned a lot about you, and I now know what the Naismith rules are, and I think I'm going to be cool with my kids. So I'm going to tell them about it.
1: so no, thank, thank you. I really enjoyed it. And anytime you want to talk about that, investors ought to be optimistic because the markets, the way markets work, if you really understand it, you end up being an optimist, which I think ties in nicely with your, your overall theme.
0: Right. And that's, you know, really, you work hard for your money, you invest your money, and that's really the shift that we made at our firm was really look at your values. How do you want to spend your time and your money? And it's with your values. And I think you've been an excellent example of that. And for everyone, it's different. But if you're true to your values and you spend your time and money aligned with it, it's great. And I do hope people will look at their early memories of money because I think, You know, being a hard worker when you were in eighth grade with the nickels and re-engineering that business had a big impact on your future. So thanks again, David, and look forward to seeing you soon. And I know we're going to continue our wonderful relationship with Dimensional. So thank you. Thank you so much. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, Rappaport Rikus Capital Management, and how we can help you maximize your return on life, please visit our website at rrcapital.com. I also have my own website, SherryGrecoRicus.com. Thank you.